This program was first broadcast on Canterbury's access media station, Plains FM, and was made with the assistance of New Zealand On Air. Kia ora and welcome to Garden of Sound, brought to you by The Nephilist. I'm Ian Turner and my guest this week is Steve Harrop. But first, if you enjoy today's show, I'd love for you to subscribe. Head to gardenofsound.nz, right there on the front page, as subscription links to your favourite podcast providers. And over on the podcast page, you'll find all 159 plus Garden of Sound shows from the past four years, celebrating the music of Canterbury and further afield. Like today, where we head to Otiake, just down the road from Kurao. It's home to Sublime Studios and Steve Harrop, an award-winning Kiwi muso who was probably playing music before he was born and has offered his bass lines and much more to some of the coolest live acts and recorded music from the 80s right through to today. But where did Steve get a start and why build a studio in the back of beyond? This is the Garden of Sound interview with Steve Harrop on Plains FM 96.9. Steve, have you got a first memory of music? Yeah, probably uh, the classic, the on my old man's knee on the lap uh, with the piano, him holding your finger while he was playing a comping left hand. That and also um, really early memories of um, Cavalry Bugle. Just we we had we had so many instruments around the house, um, and you know um, when we grew up that that would be. Um, you know, constantly you're blowing something or hitting something or playing, trying to play a chord on something. Where did you grow up? I grew up in Mount Albert okay. in Auckland. Mm-hmm. Um, and pretty interesting being surrounded by sort of 40 of my first cousins um, and their parents, my aunts and uncles, and everyone played. And, you know, we all learned the piano. We all played in brass band and we... We generally learned an orchestral instrument, so you always saw your cousins at all these different uh, gatherings of music, as well as the family kind of thing. Pretty Catholic kind of upbringing, so the music side of church came into it. And then the flip side for us as kids was my father's side. The Harrops were very, very big in in, in the whole Cayley and session okay. scene. So uh, we grew up with Irish recording and playing musicians um, who came to New Zealand coming through our house all the time, rehearsals constantly. Mm. And, you know, if you've sat there listening to to, to um, jigs and reels, I mean, it's it's pretty joyous music um, and it would be really cool. Uh, another early memory is Dad and my Aunt Kath and Uncle Joe would have um, tenors come over from Ireland and and these guys would sing these laments that were... Pretty scary. How much singing have you done through the years? That was the other instrument. You know, we were all pushed to choir and yeah. and singing and singing lessons at various stages. I kind of went in and out of of voice. Um, I ended up being, you know, being a double bass player and being a brass player. I would end up in the pit um, rather than on the stage. I came back and did some singing probably ten or fifteen years ago when I was here in Omaru. There was a very good. Uh, singing teacher who'd been one of the last Sister Mary Leo pupils mm. and she was a funny old duck that lived up on the hill and I was asked to do some four-part and they were all very classical pieces of music and, and I foolishly just went, yeah, yeah, I can read it. And um, of course I could read the notes but my delivery was adequate. That would be the best description. But um, Where but- do you sit vocally? Uh, I'm kind of I'm kind of baritone, yeah. and I can go down to bass, but yeah. um, I think I was singing the, pardon me, the tenor part in this, and so she said to me afterwards, "Oh, I'll give you, you know, um, three months of lessons and and sort you out." And it was all about that classic Sister Mary Leo voice through the head, using the resonance in your your nose and your the upper half of your of your um, body yeah. of your of your of your head to um, yeah. to sort of lift the sound and it really did work. It was quite freaky when you start thinking that way. Yeah. Um, not that I sing a lot now, but when you get people singing in the studio, it's quite you, you feel quite confident saying, "Hey, why don't you stand like this, or why don't you just lift your chin, and why don't you just try and push that up through your head rather than at the microphone?" And yeah. and it's really wild how people's uh, delivery changes instantly. Yeah. And and that was great. You know, I, I enjoyed that. 
I guess for me, yeah, musically, so you, the classic kind of right through the piano, through the grades to grade eight and LTCL and, yeah. and, and brass band as a, you know, a kid and then as an early teen, so lots of harmony and ensemble playing, which, yeah, for me, I think brass band for harmony and for your ability to, to, to think spatially as soon as you hear mm. one one note is really important. Um, okay. And and then orchestras um, right through our teens and the old man's a conductor as well. So so music was something that your family was happy to, that you embraced wholeheartedly. Yeah, there was no there, there was no holes barred for music at all. Um, you know, it was one of those funny things that uh, if there was one excuse you could miss mass for, and that was you know because you had an orchestra camp or yeah. you had a you had a gig somewhere and. It was kind of without question. And there was always unlimited access. I guess that's the luck of having um, a father who was so heavily involved in, in live playing as well as recording and as well as arranging and as, as well as writing. There was always multiple instruments. So when I look back at it now, you know, you kind of go, oh, people talk about how great Fender Rhodes and, and Hammonds are. And, you know, we had two Fender Rhodes in our music room there was always a drum kit, and they weren't shitty drum kits. They were always killer jazz kits. And so Dad would, he's kind of instilled in us as kids, he would never buy us a, a shitty instrument. He, yep. his, his way of thinking was if you bought um, a good instrument and you paid a bit more, it would make the kid play harder or better or practice more. It was more, I think, for me when I look at it now, it's more also the pride. I, I had a lot of mates who had... You know, would turn up at orchestra or band with a crappy instrument because either their parents just bought them a Chinese one, or yeah. in those days it was you know secondhand old boozy and hawk stuff from England. Okay. And um, yeah, you felt a bit prouder, so you worked a bit harder. Um, yeah, it, it was never any holes barred. Is this been any part of your um, uh, your consciousness at least with with Mads and having a a well-stocked repository. I, I mean, I, I just think for any kids, not just my own, you don't lock away instruments, and you don't, yeah. you don't kind of go, oh, that gear's for the special people, you know, um, or that microphone's only for such and such. <laughs> um, there's thousands and thousands of dollars worth of stuff that has to be played, and yep. I, I really like that. I kind of pride myself on. It doesn't matter who who the the person is as long as they have respect for the the gear or the instrument and and treat it the way that they would their own instrument nothing ever gets damaged touch wood <laughs> is there any bit of gear or any piece of equipment that you have that you think doesn't get better with age apple apple g4s yeah. <laughs> thanks no, tim steve yeah, yeah. Man, there's no apple product gets better with age Okay, that's good. Hey, um, when did you discover or start playing popular music? I think the earliest kind of kick from from playing um, what is you know rock and roll rather than than um, classical um, was when I was about eight and I was playing the trumpet and I was playing the piano and primary school and and Tim Shaw had a music program on the TV with Ray Columbus called Boomer. And um, and somehow we got entered because, you know, there's me, my cousin, uh, Pat Drum, uh, and then uh, on piano, and then um, Paul Douglas, whose old man was a muso, and it, on um, guitar, and a guy called Greg Anderson on, on, on drums. And we all were at the same convent. The parents all lived within, you know, two kilometres of each other so it was really easy to, to rehearse up and we, we were just ridiculously dressed by my mother in skivvies sort of different coloured skivvies and early ma- wiggles matching match corduroy and when I think about it it was like really it was just way way earlier we were the mm. groundbreakers for the wiggles proto but, but we, um, we we got in and we auditioned and, and we got on the show but we didn't actually um, we didn't win um, mm. and we played rock around the clock mm. Uh, and that was probably the first sort of popular music I think I can remember myself getting involved in performance-wise. Who did win and what did they play, if you remember? I couldn't tell you. I couldn't tell you. And it, it wasn't someone that was like a Hayley Weston Ra that went on to to, to conquer the world yep. or, or, or a Brooke Frazier. Um, yeah. No, it was, I, think it was, I think it was a girl who sang um, a, a Shirley 
Temple song. Oh, really? And it was. I remember. I remember watching it, just going as a kid, just going, "Shit, man! Yeah, she's good, but who the hell listens to that rubbish?" And yeah. and it was. Um, oh, I can't remember the song. I wish I could. I can remember what she looked like. Yeah. And the dance, the whole caboose, you yep. know, the full on. And the mum was really proud. Yeah. And, and Ray Columbus loved it. <laughs> She's going to sell a million. <laughs> I don't know what happened to her. Where was your first sort of paying gig? We used to get we used to get a lot of jazz gigs um, just with the old man when we were still at, at school. So fortunately, coming having, I've got uh, three other brothers and a sister. So there was a drummer and a trom player who also played keys. Yep. So being a bass player, having a dad who was a pianist. And and then uh, a a, tr- a drummer and a trom player, we could go and do these little quartet family bebop gigs and yeah. the mates, the old man's mates' restaurants or clubs or whatever. It wasn't so much clubs. I think that would have been uh, intermediate school. And then I wow. think I remember Ben and I, and maybe Matt as well. Matt's the drummer brother. Um, might not have been Matt there, but we did. We did. It. We jumped up on the stage at the Mount Ross School. Um, Memorial Hall before Trudy Green played with uh, one of those early eighties punk outfits, and okay. we did, and and we did, um, we just heard the clean beatnik, so it would have been eighty one, I think, eighty two, okay. and and um, we get jumped up on stage and played um, beatnik, no, played uh, Louie Louie, and then beatnik sang them because they were you know pathetically easy words, and no one in Auckland really heard. Um, the, that song, the Beatnik song at that point, but it's such a catchy old na 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 regarded as 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 a professional thing as well as being an enjoyable thing you know I, I remember as primary school kids going around Newmarket doing caroling you know four piece you were the three of your cousins or maybe one of my brothers on trombone and two of my cousins on cornet and yeah. and Barry or, yeah. or, or Tina and um and we'd go and go and you're not supposed to go in the pubs because we were kids but if we went into the pub, snuck in and played, yeah. all, all the drunks would give you shitloads of money. Yeah. yeah, and um, to the point where we would we would just do it after school to raise some dough. Yep. You know, on the way home, hop off the Newmarket bus, and Brilliant. you all had your instruments. Yeah. So it was always it was always seen as a as a as a noble pursuit rather than just being artistic. And I think you know sometimes it's hard to it's hard to sort of it's not instill but to explain to people that. Without um, live gigs for especially the rock side of of music and venues, it's very hard to get people to to do things and go. Yeah, this is noble. I deserve to get paid because there's no pub gigs. There's no small venues that that people are happy to pay a fiver over on the door. Even and, such a yeah, small amount too. Yeah, and it got killed. I watched it get killed when we were playing the pub circuits with with a few rock bands and, and then later we, we were getting you know, a lot of work in the 80s playing jazz and that was a bit more slick but the pub guys were slowly getting pushed out by the breweries yeah. and and they became, you know, places became way more uh, drink-oriented rather than, than entertainment-oriented. Interesting. Yeah. Speaking of that, it is time for some music um, and I do ask for, for influences at least and musician, heart, soul, head, Ethos, vibe. What track are we going to hear now? Now I'd play Art Pepper from that album Art Meets the Rhythm section. Okay. Any of the songs on that. But an amazing where, where, you know, the first time Pepper had met Miles Davis's quartet, the first time they'd gone to the West Coast and they'd heard about Pepper. Most of the time, you know, he's, he's a great alto player and a, and a white guy playing incredible bebop. Um, but he spent a lot of time inside and, you know, he's a notorious junkie. And and he gets together with uh, these three guys who he's never met before. They took a while to find him because he'd just come out. He'd done another stint mm. in, in one of the San Francisco prisons. And they got him an alto sax. And uh, I think um, that guy Leo Connors put it, put the the session together. They gave him a sax, and they sort of he met the met the um, band, and then he disappeared. And, Someone fixed him and he came back and he blew an entire album in an afternoon and half of its originals. 
you listen to that and you just find it very hard to believe the guy hadn't touched the sax for about 11 months or something.
This is the Garden of Sound interview with Steve Harrop on Plains FM 96.9. Uh, we were just talking about mics because obviously uh, we are in Otiake uh, at Sublime Everything, really, including yeah. <laughs> the including the studio. What's your favorite? What's your favorite vocal mic? I, I, I think my favorite vocal mic is still the U87, yep. which is a really cheesy answer, but um, it's just it's just amazing workhorse microphone. But I'd also have to put a big plug in for Lawton, who we use a, a 32 mil capsule, big format Lawton FET mic, mm. um, and this is how incredible the microphone is, is that most of the records that have been made here, the kick mic is the Lawton, and then after the drum takes are done, the the kick mic, which is the Lawton, becomes the Lawton the vocal mic. Wow. And and that's how that's how diverse this this well, I, I treat them like an instrument because yeah. they are so important to the process. Yeah, just a beautiful thing. You know what you're gonna get from a U eighty seven. They're transparent, they're even, they're tonally balanced. Um, you don't really say, Oh, they punch the middles like certain capsules do. But they but then you put a person in front of a Lawton uh, and the first time and the convincing one to buy it was Simon Gooding turned up with a big Lawton, brand new one. He hadn't used it. Um, it was a trial and we put it in front of Reb Fountain and everyone loves Reb's incredibly expressive, plosive, almost you can you can you can feel and mm. and sense the, the wet and the and, and the way Reb's mouth and lips are working when you listen to her. Mm. And that microphone suddenly just turned the whole thing upside down. It wow. was so big. So for that kind of expressive singer, I, I prefer the Lawton for just your, your go-to microphone in the studio. I Yeah, I love the 87. How long have you wanted that recording studio? Um, I don't know when I wanted it. It was a pretty pretty strange – it was a, a truly a whim, really, um, about when we were doing the, that room up, the wall sorting side of the wall shed – which had the floor, the rest of the shed where the, where the control room, where my office is and yep. where all the gear is, was all slatted for, and yep. it was full of pens. Yep. Um, and there was two sharing stands sort of where the window in the, in the control room is. We put a first wall to make my office and then left the slats and the pens and the other side where, where it was um, the sorting room, all my kind of music gear that I had, lugged around the world and and or left with mum and dad or it got it got other people's houses or storage or studios just slowly after 2003 coming back started started making its way to the place and then other local musos that that I met would gravitate here and there was a sort of little core of myself Graham Peters and uh and a guy called Justin Wilson um who all had gear and um, Jay was like fifth or six, fifth generation, I think. Yeah. Um, Graham's from Dunedin, originally a Jaffa. His his wife was teaching at the school. Mm. The three of us just got together and we'd find different people to come and play drums. Um, at that point, I just started accumulating older analog gear as studios were shutting. Um, I couldn't work out why. A lot of stuff was was just you know studios were shutting down. I'd been away from New Zealand for eight or nine years and. And it was quite radical how much gear there was yeah, and how cheap it was back then. I mean, I wish I'd shopped hard when yeah. we first got back here. But there's a lot of older New Zealand gear. There's a lot of old international gear. Um, I kind of like the history of keeping old pieces of, of kit that have been used in recordings and the whole time in New Zealand. Well, why, why sell them overseas? Because they are worth more overseas. A lot mm, of absolutely. Um, so that's why we, we kind of amassed it and built it. Tell me about the desk. The desk was again another whim. I mean, that once once I'd put the the centre wall, we hung the ceiling, we did the the vault in the top. We we then lined the the we took the floors off and lined it and and had the building sort of floating off the ground in another building. Yeah. Um. So you suddenly double insulated the thing. And then I thought, well, let's soundproof it as well. So then we soundproofed the outer layer and and we lined the interior with with um the kids from schools old um hundred hundred twenty year old school got bold and um I got all the floors because they were they could lift them off in one piece. It was a fluke that we used all this recycled Rimu tongue and groove, and then a drummer buddy of mine who was an architect, he he, he just said, "Oh, 
it's really great, you know, you've done some research. I said, what do you mean? He goes, well, that's the best lining, you know, it flexes and it's and it's uneven as well. Okay. And um, I said, I don't know, mate, that's just what I had. And so there was a lot of flukes in that room. And then when Tom and, and another buddy of his who'd gone through um, Engineering University came down here uh, on, on another whim to work with me with the desk, the desk had arrived from Dublin. Albert Cowan, who was the engineer in those early um, you know, U2 sessions, and he was the very well-known Dublin engineer mm-hmm. of, of everything from kind of uh, Cranberries, Folk, um, uh, the Rory, Rory Buchanan, mm-hmm. they'd all gone to this wee studio. And then yep. that moved down, I think, to um, what was then Willow Lane or something where the second U2 studio got built. So when that got built, that desk, Albert had recorded obviously some pretty significant records and cuts on it. And, you know, there's, I'd love to actually get him and nail him down for some stories, but, you know, there's, there's kind of stories that Lily White and Bowie and might have, that might have touched or used that desk, I don't really know, but mm. it definitely did a lot of U2 stuff. Yeah. Um, and it definitely tracked, you know, like cranberries and a huge amount of that kind of Dublin scene through the, the 80s and 90s. Um, mm-hmm. When I got it out here, it had been in storage for, they'd pulled it out in 93 and I bought it in 215. Oh, so, wow. you know, it had been in storage in pieces, yeah. all the modules, um, yeah. being that old classic, you know, 70s um, styles of, of English desks, the Neves, the the Soundcrust, the Tridents. Um, yeah. The Americans began to, to, to buy all those companies and then they went past the modular and you lost that whole thing again. So we're pretty lucky to get it. I mean, the history of 2400s in itself is amazing, you know, Yes, recorded uh, 9010720 or whatever the hell it's called. Mm. The number album with Owner of a Lonely Heart and all that sort of thing mm-hmm. where he got, uh, he got some just amazing sounds. But that's yep. done on an old analog disc and mixed on one. Jethro told it all his stuff on Soundcrafts. Yeah. There were 1600s and 2400s all over London and then they've all disappeared, you know. Does it have internal compression? No, no compression, no okay. on board. It's just, it's just your classic line strip of... Of gain inputs, EQs. Yep. So the pre's on it are, are very English styles. The EQ on it's pretty good, you know. Yeah. For for a, a, they're designed in seventy eight or seventy seven, yeah. and they made them till about eighty one. And it's got its own patch bay as well. Yeah, so we run we run as much outboard as we can get our hands on now. Yeah. Um, and and a lot of that gear in the control room, the big people come in and go, "Wow, how did how did you find that?" Such a great big outboard tower, but that's that's out of the power station, so that would have held old nineteen inch uh, yep. uh, valve um, monitors for yeah. the pressure in the pipes and, yeah. the, and the hydro gear, yeah. and the lights in there that are hanging are all out of the the big uh, generator galleries. Yeah. Um, so there's, there's lots of bits. All all the all the gear inside the studio is all recycled as far as. Um, baffles yep. and all our sound treatment, we try and make that ourselves or get it made by people using um, recycled velvet. There's a lot of red velvet in there. People sort of come in and go, whoa, look at this. It's like, whoa. But I, I just went out and bought a a, a, a upholstery gun, put it on the compressor and just started making stuff. And it's all it's all quite thought out. Um, Tom and Max measured the room and did a lot of the physics in there. Yeah. Um, at the same time, they recapped the entire desk. So 24 strips came out, tested from front to back, every capacitor, yep. anything that was remotely dodgy was was recapped. Um, and then just to keep them busy, I, I found uh, another one in Greece um, <laughs> about two years later, and they'd pulled it apart, and I bought all 24 strips of that. So I, I had 24 replaceable strips and then um i also was was lucky i got uh a huge amount of older pieces patch bay bits vus um an entire front face of all the knobs and, and buttons yeah. um and faders so we yeah we're pretty we, we're pretty self-sufficient as far as having those those resources there and i, I mean i'm just incredibly lucky to have wandered across a guy like tom because you know in three or four years he's made a big name as far as this guy in the middle of nowhere, this English guy who is just incredibly good with analog gear yeah. and and with his microphone work and his yeah. ears. Yeah. But he's also got a much nicer manner than me and he's got an English accent. So, you know, he's, it's better to get Tom to talk to the drummer. Well, 
It's interesting if you, you say that. I was going to ask, um, what is the secret of your success? Because you are a rather personable person. I was I was thinking about what you were going to ask me, and, and I reckon that most of the things you do that that are that are commercial or personal or creative or self fulfilling, it's it's only about twenty percent of that is 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 talent or or delivery or uh, ability, and about eighty percent is just being able to talk about it and get it done. So the whole interpersonal skills or the or the organisational skills, which to me is just being good at talking, yeah, is eighty percent of the process. No matter what I do, yeah. And so when people come to the to record, you know, I've never met them before, and depending on how much trust they put in Tom and I, um, and a lot of people arrive and they they throw it right through to you too. Well, you choose the tempo and you go, but you wrote it. You wrote this song. It's your song. Really? Yeah, well, you have a listen and see what you think and, and tell us. Or, or the arrangement or how you layer vocals or would you put strings? Okay, can you can you kind of put some string parts in there? And um, You know, people will trust you with their babies and, and um, so you just have to talk them into delivering the, the best-looking baby. Yeah. Um, wrong analogy, I think. But the, but everyone's baby's the best looking baby. Oh, absolutely! Um, yeah. But it's yeah, it's it's all about being able to communicate and to to um, commune more than just talking because you're communing through the music and stuff as well. So if you and I've just always been brought up with that sort of. There's been a sense of of communing with music right since I was born. You know, it wasn't just about practicing the piano and learning the C major, learning the C minor, learning mm-hmm. the, the B flat scale, whatever. It was more about where that left you or placed you, firstly for me with my family and then with my extended family, then with this incredible um, kind of network of people everywhere and anywhere. That mm. Whether you met them today or you grew up with them, it, it, there's an instant secret kind of communication that you that you really, you know, For me, I I get a hell of a kick out of it. It's great. It's time for some music, and we do ask for an all-time favourite. An artist called The Drones, and you want to play Nail It Down. Tell me more about The Drones. Melbourne band, sort of um, built around a guy called Gareth Lydiard, who is probably one of the the coolest sounding guitar sounds you know you every so often so there's a guitar sound that gets thrown up in in new zealand and aussie do it conor moccasin's doing it at mm. the moment with that crazy bendy stuff well he has done it for the last 10 years and probably longer and 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 gareth is is like all this kind of stoogy sound of the of of the gruffest, most killer sort of Jaguar or Jazzmaster sound, you know, mm-hmm. same as the Nirvana and the grungy yep. thing, but but he just takes it to a new limit as far as the how how much he uses the whammy to do dives, how contrasted he is on absolutely hammering lines and, and virtuoso kind of tunings and, and chord patterns. Yeah. Um, as well as this these stories which are just so ridiculously Aussie and so beautifully put down is you know i love that style over there the nick cave this guy um jimmy barnes um oh, the angels all of them there's something about those front men singing those songs whether it's hutchins or whether it's oh same with um seymour from uh from um Hunters and yeah. Collectors. Hunters and Collectors, yeah. yeah. And, you know, he's another guy. Yeah. Just great front man and great voices. They were just so confident. Sometimes we lack that kind of, you know, that real kind okay. of confidence. Kind of, yeah, yeah. yeah. They, they, they just, yeah, yeah, so cocksure. You kind of get that with a few guys. I mean, Johnny Too Good's good like that. Yeah. Um, yeah. But, you know, he was, he was, he's quite late in the piece. But, but every so often, we're, we, we are a little bit shoegazers sometimes, yeah. whereas those guys are really. Doing it, but Lydia is um, surrounded by great players. I think his girlfriend's on bass. The drummer's just superlative, and these songs are just absolutely ripper. This is nail it down from the drones.
nail it down, nail it down, come back home and just nail it down. Yeah, you can't get nothing up off the ground if someone don't come along and nail it down. He says he knows, he says he knows, but he's never even been where his mouth goes. Well, it's all the same, that vicious seal, but how does what's false apply to what is real? And why's it gotta be a mystery? You gotta lay it out. Like thunderheads creeping down the hill, and pretty soon everyone gets ill. But I slip the net, be tall and thin, and pretty soon the dark turns to dim. I can see a little clearer now. She traveled on the weather, looked like I stand. She said, I don't cross the way you think sometimes you're like a star that's died but hasn't lost its shine. Well, my head is hollow when she turns to go. And I'll 
This is the Gardener Sound interview with Steve Harrop on Plains FM 96.9. I want to talk about um, something that you've worked on, and this is with the Straw People uh, from the Broadcast album. And it's a very well-known track, Sweet Disorder. I think uh, to many years it will be quite quite familiar. Now you've played bass on Yeah, that was double bass. Yeah. Double bass, okay. I was, I, was play- I was flat out playing in a bebop outfit, again with the Haynes's and my brothers called the Jazz Committee. And then from the spin-off, there was a lot of, there was just a lot of jazz work in the 80s. It was quite incredible that, and, you know, having been raised up with a, a jazz playing dad and being exposed to it from young, it was, to us it wasn't that foreign or that studied or that difficult because we had all the records around the house and the old man had, just stacks of sheet music and yeah. we could all read. So we found that we discovered these incredible little books from the 50s and 60s called um, The Real Book, which had, you know, 300 of the jazz standards yeah. and then these things called fake, fake books. Fake books, yeah. And you had the E-flat, the B-flat and the C and so you had instantly you could get one buddy who played sax, yep. another buddy who played trumpet or trombone, a, a guitarist or a pianist and, and a drummer and, and, and you could immediately sight read these amazing old tunes and yeah. and then we would back reference and cross reference to to the bebop stuff that, that dad had played us like the jazz messengers and a lot of art blakey um i think that really influenced me as a kid towards bebop and all the miles stuff all of the coltrane stuff a lot of the early bird stuff as well so you know we were exposed to parker's crazy lines and it was quite normal for us to hear a solo and you go oh yeah well that, that's not a whole lot of gobbledygook because the guy's playing within the the c ninth scale but but he, but the bass player's going the opposite direction and you get this great contrary motion and oh, that's really clever um and other people just go what are they doing <laughs> yeah yeah bebop really just totally kind of possessed us and through the 80s, I played with all these young guys who were my mates, and then you'd get asked to go and sit in and play for replacement gigs and fill-in gigs, so I started doing the Brian Smiths and the Murray McNabs and played a lot with Frank Conway, who's just one of the most beautiful men and beautiful drummers in this country, yeah. um, and such a teacher. And he'd worked with my old man, you know, so I'd oh. known Frank you know, in and out from... He'd seen me when I was just... just or before I was born, you know. Yeah. And... Um, there was this, yeah, this really kind of nice feel. And uh, so the double bass sort of was a cool instrument from the point that no one else, well, not no one else, but there was a limited club of players who yep. could read. So Mark and Paul, when they started doing Straw People, there was only two bass players working with them. It was me and there was Yost. And, and Yost would do the the electric lines and uh, trick with a knife. And there was some great famous stuff from both sides of that album. And I was doing a lot of the the more groovy, chill, beaty-driven stuff. So this song is definitely, uh, you know, it's an iconic New Zealand song, and I'm just lucky to be part of it. But Lisa Corbin on vocal, who was just incredible, 
Greg Johnson has quite a blow in it. Um, Joel Haynes has a little play in it. Uh, I don't know who else is doing bits, but it just got... It, uh, the sessions were pretty endless um, sampling of lines and ideas and patterns. Then studio sessions when there was a little bit more structure and form. And then you wouldn't see the guys for six months and then out would come a song and you'd go, oh, holy moly... They've cut up four bits of my bass and they've lined an entire song with it. And, yeah, that first motif was just, I remember playing it and it was kind of like a uh, a, um, a line I was using in a, in a um, bebop song my brother had done called This Way Comes and that was a rip-off of something else. So it, it, I just played it and Mark went, yeah, that's very good, good. Now take that, do that again and, and then I'd do it again and, and maybe did it three times, I think. And then it was okay, move on. And then when the song came out, um, it's just it starts with the double bass line only by itself, you know, pretty wet up and reverb. And then in comes Lisa Corbin over the top of it. Yeah. And then comes in the the drum programming. But the drum programming is is so clean in eighties and, and and crispy. And what he took, which I think is so clever, you, cleverly used, was he he took all the samples of me doing glisses, going boo, boo, and we can do that with an oscillator and get it really nice and fine. But when it's done manually, mm-hmm. it's kind of different rate from from the beat or from the the decay that you get from doing it electronically. And they've dropped that sample at the beginning of the of each of these drum intros, and it sounds so cool. Um, yeah. Yeah, it's a neat song. I, I mean, it's classic. You, know, you, you walk around the New World or the airport or something, and on it comes, and you're like, oh, no, there it is. <laughs> but it still sounds good. It still sounds cool. And and it and it's quite a nice memory, you know. So if it was a shitty session, you wouldn't really remember it. Uh, we went uh, rate paid. We were just piece paid for the part. So I'm sure Sony did a lot better out of my, my very, very <laughs> underpaid baseline. Yeah. Everybody's sleeping under my skin. Never quite believing, and so it begins. Someone gets elected, and a satellite falls.
This is the Garden of Sound interview with Steve Harrop on Plains FM 96.9. Um, do you kick yourself every day living in such a beautiful part of the world? Yeah, I do. I do. I um, I kind of give thanks uh, on a daily basis to however this happened. I like the fact that, that we've built something and with an intent but with a pretty lax kind of plan and... And people have heard about it and people have have sought us out and it's like using our entire surrounds to to make musos happy and by default they make you happy. So it really doesn't feel like work ever. Okay. <laughs> what else have you done for a crust? Uh, I've worked in finance, I've worked in development, I've I've been a, a farmer, I've done a lot of um You're fired. <laughs> Sorry, man. I've Done a lot of work with vineyards, mm. Pinot Noir, yep. grapes, winemaking, exporting of wine, creating of brands and labels for wine. I've also owned uh, some pretty crummy old buildings that never made the Auckland boomy boom yeah. with businesses that were equally as crummy and crazy, but um, like bakeries and K Road. Yeah, I've, I've always always done things that, that have been interesting and difficult but not so difficult that they became um intolerable you know i like it i like a challenge and you don't drink anymore no i try not to drink anymore Mm. um i I, i'm one of those people that i think is better without alcohol i'm pretty (laughs) hyperactive yeah pretty adhd i do i do have the i do have that whole thing about taking the edge off myself every so often just to try and and uh chill out and I guess you know playing music and being in hospo and and being around booze all the time and then moving on and and making a lot of booze you kind of you're over it I sort of got towards my 50s and realized that kids are growing up yep. you're more of an example than you actually yeah. think you are yep. um you're actually culturing and and nurturing and conditioning people with it, with or without the attitude you have to booze mm. and and so I I guess I didn't I'm not I'm not some kind of, um, I guess, fundamental teetotaler or anything. Yep. I don't really talk too much about. Um, I just some people will notice, like you know, I I push wine pretty hard, yeah. and then they look at you and no, oh, you don't drink the stuff. Yeah, yeah. Well, no, we 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 make a lot of it, and yep. uh, it's there to be enjoyed. Yep. I try not to think of the flip side because there is always consequences of yep. of any kind of stimulant. I find the I find the life without booze is not that difficult. Yeah. This is the Garden of Sound interview with Steve Harrop on Plains FM 96.9. Steve, I'm going to test your uh, general knowledge and musical uh, acuity. Um, I've got 10 questions for you. It's going to take uh, 60 seconds. Uh, If you don't know the answer to any of these questions, just say pass. Okay. Okay, that's cool. (laughs) All right, Steve Harrop, your time starts now. Tom York is best known as the lead singer and songwriter for which English band? Beans and yeah, yeah, that's the one. Just pass, pass. Victor, Felipe, Randy, David, Glenn, and Alex made up which band that was formed in 1977? Uh, uh, Village People. (laughs) What is the more common name for the instrument that's also known as a fiddle? Violin. What's the name of the American comedian who released Asshole in 1993? Uh, Weird Al Yankovic. What's the nationality of musician and DJ Calvin Harris? Uh, English. What's the stage name of the musician born as Adam Wiles? Pass. What type of instrument is a bodron? It's percussion. What was the name of the best-selling 1991 album from Nirvana? Never mind. Okay, and your time is up. I'll just run through those answers. You're going to kick yourself. I know. I Radiohead. Know. Exactly. Radiohead. I know. All right, well done. On the vi- you got the village people, though. <laughs> there you go. Okay. That's uh, shocking. Fiddle, fiddle <laughs> violin. That's good. Uh, Dennis Leary with oh, Asshole. yeah. Kelvin Harris is Scottish, and the stage name of the musician Adam Wiles is Kelvin Harris. So there we go. Oh. That's a twofer. Well done. You got Bodron. And you got never mind. That's not too bad. You got five out of ten there, which is brilliant. Um, accommodation, vineyard, recording studio. What's next? Something 
agricultural again. Mm. I think um, moving away from livestock-based stuff, I'd yep. like to try uh, a lot more tree planting. We were okay. thinking of this this area used to have a lot of totra, so yep. we're thinking of starting putting in totra and uh, some other smaller, shorter natives, maybe some flax or little perisporums and, and get some patches growing. Yeah. And then uh, look at just plant-based protein stuff, Okay, uh, whether it's getting it from lucerne, whether it's getting yep. it from cereals, whether it's – and strangely enough, this area that I worked on around here was originally held the bushel or was one of the bushel-holding areas for most yield of wheat and barley and grain – in the 30s. Wow. So it's been stripped out, but it's it's still in good nick. And yeah. and it's a really interesting place as far as climate. You know, we're in the driest place in New Zealand here. Yeah. And uh, the rainfall's, you know, equal to Perth. So people don't kind of equate North Otago, but it's droughty and it's it's the toughest landscape. And, and it's beautiful. It's totally different from central Otago. Yeah. It's quite unique, this little part of the world. And... Yeah, we just stumbled upon it. It's yeah. great to get. It's great to put musos in the mix because the kind of people come here and, and the surrounds get them as well as the you know the fact that they're excited about recording their yeah. art. Yeah. Um, and that's really important because you know, I kind of think of studios and places that I've recorded and and done sessions and half of them are next to the shittiest pubs or you know <laughs> just down the road from some scummy factory yeah. or. They're smelly and they, they're not very nice places to stay for too long. <laughs> so from your experience, you get more out of the muso in this beautiful location? Oh, definitely, yeah. And and no no noise restraints, no neighbours, no traffic, no people turning up, no pub, you know, no dealer, no hooker. It's, yeah. it's you know, not that you want to cliche musos, but it's, it's just you come here for a reason yep. and so you already created a purpose. Yeah. Uh, so for, to me, that's like make that as pleasant as possible, whether it's Fenella's amazing food, whether it's yeah. the fact that they just want to wander around in between takes and, and you know, enjoy the place. It, it's there to be enjoyed. It's, um, yeah, it's part of it. And we've got time for just one more track and we're going to be looking at a freebase track called Thinking of Ricardo that you've played on. Yeah, freebase was um, with my brother Ben and the, the Haynes brothers and, Ricardo and Juanito Pratt, um, Joel Haynes, Nathan Haynes. Um, it was two drummers and two percussionists, and the percussionists were father and son, Juanito and Ricardo Pratt, who were just the most fun musos in the world and great players. And that whole era of acid jazz, mixing jazz with Latin and jazz with funk, um, including Manuel Bundy, the great DJ from the 80s and 90s, uh, scratching live with us a lot. And we were just very lucky that we played that music. We we supported uh, you know a few really interesting tours. Dig from uh, Sydney, Melbourne. Um, we did their tour here in in uh, Oz, New Zealand, and and then um, Soul to Soul, which was really cool. You know when they came over, and we were still getting good venues that were uh, big enough to play a funk outfit, but small enough to still be cool. Yeah. Uh, and that band recorded a live album with. Mark Turney in 93, um, which won the New Zealand Jazz Award because it was jazz, mm. even though it was heavily beat-driven. Yep. Um, and it's fully live and, and recorded in Celeb Nightclub. And this is the opening song. Ricardo had – we were thinking of Ricardo because we were playing a Sunday gig one time and the cops be- belted up the stairs and dragged Ricardo away. And um, we found out later that Ricardo had brought a kilo of coke into the country. Wow. So. <laughs> As we, you do, we didn't see him for a while, and so my brother wrote this song, thinking of Ricardo, which is very unusual. To, um, it was the most fun thing to play on the dance floor. It had a, the groovingest four beat, and then it had a bar of three. So um, we put we built the whole song around that, and yeah. uh, it sounds great. Steve, thank you so much for being on the show. Cool, thank you very much.
Thanks for joining me today on Garden of Sound, and thanks to Steve Harrop for welcoming me to his home in Otiaki to do this interview. Thanks also to Fenella for the amazing hospitality, Julian and Mads for their interviews, and my long-suffering wife for playing chauffeur. It's very rock and roll. If you want to find out more about Sublime Studios, then head to gardenofsound.nz and click on Steve's photo. Next week, we've got Josh Braden from No Broadcast, ahead of the release of their third studio album. I'm Ian Turner, and this has been Garden of Sound. Until next week, keep well, keep listening, and keep playing. Enohorah.